G'day and welcome back to the Talking Leadership Podcast. My guest today brings 17 years of leadership and operational management experience gained through his time in the Australian military. He's worked for various not-for-profits and commercial businesses and during his time in the military served as a logistics specialist which included a variety of postings covering logistics, leadership, operations and instructional roles. He's a veteran of Timor-Leste serving as a logistics staff officer of an aviation group and of Afghanistan where he was embedded in the US Army's 3rd Infantry Division. Rounding out his military career, my guest instructed at the Royal Military College Duntroon and other ADF schools, commanded a logistics company in an infantry battalion and was discharged after serving as the operations officer of a logistics battalion. Since then, my guest has been active in the corporate and not-for-profit spaces, holding appointments as an operations manager, general manager, and serving various multiple terms with the Surf Lifesaving Club and the RSL branch committees. He is now serving other businesses and individuals as a leadership coach under the banner Joel Tunstall Leadership Coaching. So enough from me, let's hand over to Joel and hope you enjoy the podcast. Joel, thanks for joining us, mate. Nice to be here. Mate, thank you for being here. And as always, I have my partner in crimes, Ben Deverson, as my co-host for today's podcast. How are you, mate? I'm good, Eric. Yourself? I'm good, my friend. So I'll hand over to you to start the uh, questions. Great. And Joel, how are you, mate? Not too bad. All good. Thanks again for joining our podcast. It's always good to have guys from the old days of the uniform giving their views on leadership, uh, in particular to the military and civil civilian context. So, Joel, a lot of standard questions we asked of our guests with a similar background to you, but keen to understand a little bit about your background. So let's just talk about the beginning of your leadership pathways. Tell us where it all began. I guess in the professional context, like a lot of the other uh, military speakers on the podcast, got drawn towards the Australian military, specifically the Army, started the the, uh, the the ride through Duntroon. I guess if we take it a, a step back, I think, again, sharing a similar uh, bent towards most leaders, it starts from an early age. Things like sport in Australia usually are the, the segue to get you into leadership and thinking like that, whether you're a captain of a team or just trying to uh, uh, get everyone together to shoot for the common goal. And, and I was heavily involved in surf life saving and competitive pool swimming. I found myself enjoying the team events far more than the individual events uh, and sometimes in some leadership positions. Through that, I think it naturally uh, aligned me to push towards the military where I ended up going, as I said, direct entry into Duntroon. Fantastic. Thanks for that, mate. Look, one follow-up question here, and it links up to why we want to talk about leadership, is you've worked in the military context. And of course, in that context, you're going to learn a whole range of leadership skills, and and they've been made uh, very clear to us through previous guests. So on this question, I might go with Ben's permission, a little bit rogue here. I want to know what your perspectives are on transferring some of those skills into the civilian context and if you believe so that that's question one and the second part to that question is do you believe there are gaps that you had to had to address that your training in the military just wouldn't cover or couldn't cover yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a great question. I think a lot of the time it also depends on your exact experience through the military. Uh, it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure novel in many respects, and not all three services are the same, and not all uh, services are the same. For me, myself, I spent 15 years as an army officer through the ranks up to uh, major, as a logistics officer by trade in the Ordnance Corps. I spent a lot of my time attached to combat units with, uh, with aviation and infantry. So I saw a, a quite a large breadth of experience within the Australian Army compared to some of the more 
streamlined pathways that go through. For me, myself, I found there were many areas that were transferable. I think one of the good things that the military does with its leadership training is to set you up for success with base foundation skill sets. And, you know, um, institutions like ADPRA and Duntroon are quite good at that. And there's a lot of doctrinal learning, as we all know, things about, you know, the, the leadership models, delivery of intent, communication skills, stuff like that, which is a, an underpinning formal knowledge of leadership, which is quite easily transferable to the civilian space. And I think that also rings true for a lot of the junior NCOs, senior NCOs out there as well. Those are lessons taught at the NCO academies, which are completely transferable to any level within the civilian sector. As for gaps, I think, yeah, there's a bunch of gaps. And again, it depends on your, your style of leadership. I think a lot of the times uh, the, the portrayal is that army officers particularly are a bit more gruff and we need to soften our edges a little bit more moving into the civilian world. I, I think that's entirely personal and comes down to the type of operator that you are and how you are, how you manage yourself. In terms of core leadership skills, I myself didn't notice any gaps. The gaps are actually just understanding civilian industry which I find is uh, much easier to learn and teach than foundation skill sets, especially if you've reached a certain uh, seniority within the system. That's actually a really good point, that last one, Joel. And I think that a lot of people exiting the military tend to have that level of anxiety about their ability to operate at a similar level. I usually challenge that and argue similar points that what you just stated, which was it's really just an understanding of the industry you're entering. And invariably, those skills that you learn as a manager, leader of people, you, they're very transferable. Can I make an observation, gents? And this is uh, looking back at the guests that we've had, and it could be just because of the picks that I made and, and for the different episodes, but it seems like you all go into a form of consulting of one form or another. You know, Ben, in the, in, in the context that he's in, in the legal profession, and, and you, Joel, in the space that you work in. And I might ask you both this, and I know that we're, we're talking to Joel from your experience, but I'd like to get Ben in this as well, because I've never asked the following is, do you think there's something in your training from both your experiences that lends itself to being self-employed and getting into the consulting space? Or is that just a happenstance of being um, officers in the Australian military, as an example? Uh, we might start with Joel first, if that's cool. Yeah, great. Uh, really good question. And your, your observation is spot on. Uh, the, the sheer amount of peers and colleagues of mine uh, in the consulting space, there's a trend. I think, speaking for myself, as a leader in the military, you informally become a, a trainer and a, a pretty good trainer as well. We have great systems and structures of breaking things down and we understand the necessity of a lot of underpinning knowledge and the time that you invest in training, getting those reps in to uh, create those efficiencies in the military context, those efficiencies can mean the difference between, uh, you know, life and death at times. So we put the effort in there. And I think it naturally develops this skill set within your leadership teams of being great instructors, great teachers who value that. I think then you combine that with probably a fairly similar experience stepping into the civilian world where, Many of us probably get a few runs on the board, working in different organisations, pat out your resume so you don't just look like a, a, a military person and that's it. And then gradually you probably find yourself or grow the confidence in yourself and your ability to say that, hey, I've got something a bit different here and the, the situations and the experiences and the context and the training that I've 
uh, being put through uh, stand me apart from my contemporary civilian peers. You know, not not all, but uh, but many. And usually, for, well, for myself, I gravitated towards the consulting space because I often found when I was operating from within an organisation with every good intention to train, educate, upskill, implement systems, you're stymied. You're stymied by uh, office politics, your position, your role, biases, I guess in the military leadership context, age, and, you know, the uh, normal stereotypes about what military people are and how they might behave. Uh, I soon found myself looking towards the option of consulting externally and being able to come in sideways to organisations and provide or utilise all the skills uh, at my disposal rather than feeling stymied. I I can only echo Joel's points uh, Eric and and I guess that journey that that Joel just spoke about is essentially what I did I did let's bear in mind I mean I've been out of the military now for the better part of 20 years and 25 kilos between the three of us anyway and what Joel mentioned and and I actually still to this very day implement the training I got at Duntroon and Joel would know all too well the military appreciation process the ability to break down an issue consider courses of action assess them and then provide a recommendation and to this very very day and in fact today I was talking to a person I'm doing I'm doing a coaching process with and I said to her when you want to consult internally and you want to assist your the leaders in your firm to do things you need to provide options you don't just push problems up to them you need to provide options so we've experienced this issue our options are a b and c courses of action I recommend going with option c because it has the highest return on investment or the lowest cost or lowest risk. That in a nutshell is how we learn to break down issues, as Joel put perfectly, in a military context. We have a situation put in front of us and we have to decide there and then through our military appreciation training how we break down things and come to a conclusion. And re- regardless of context, I mean, in, I do obviously work in the legal profession, you still consult and you provide your clients options. Uh, and I was saying to this to my own staff the other day, we don't give our clients questions. We only give them options. And it's something I press to my people all the time that the only thing we ever give to our clients is options, how they can improve. If we see an issue, we give them a solution straight away or we, we propose a solution straight away. We never say, what would you like us to do here? So leaving a uh, leaving a client with a question mark is something we don't do. And I think that comes from my military training. What I see in the military is that you're all there working as a big coherent unit yet you're all rugged individualists because when you leave you're all doing your own thing you're not if you see what i mean you see from someone from the outside how that might look and it's i'm not putting a judgment on it it's just an interesting insight that the military produces individuals at once they leave are geared to do certain things and not only consulting but i think if you had a kernel of entrepreneurialism in your dna the military is only going to enhance that once you leave because you're going to want to do your own thing Let's go on to the next question, if we can, Joel. What's your perspective on key leader capabilities needed by our leaders? I'm talking now that you're in the civilian context. There's a few things that keep cropping up in terms of attributes or abilities. I think, you know, structurally, if you're talking uh, generic skill sets, comms comms is everything internally in a person a few attributes which i like and i think it's it's come to the fore especially during these COVID times where a lot of the civilian industries who have some veterans employed 
uh, have noticed this in this time of stress and crisis and need for rapid decision making. Being calm in the storm is that nice, nice little metaphor of army officers walk in the rain. You'll never see a bunch of army officers on a base running to hide from the rain. And it's that understanding of that physical presence of leadership and those subconscious body language things that you give off and that physical example that if you're going to walk in the rain, it extends to the, the longest extent of that, say, when you're under fire and things like that. And, you know, most of the military training is, is steeped in psychology where it starts off with simple things like, you know, making and ironing your bed to make sure that your weapon's squared away at the time of need. I think as well, some moral courage, which is two very strong words put together. I think most people should have heard of leadership versus likership. And I see a lot of junior inexperienced leaders falling into the pitfall of lacking some moral courage and leaning towards that likership model where they think they have to be everyone's friend. And it tends to make you choose the easy wrong over the hard right choice. So maintaining an ability to make that hard call, be a little bit dispassionate about it as required and do what's required regardless of people's uh, personal feelings or the hardships that may endure from it. As well as a, a basic level of understanding of psychology, I think understanding the human condition, what intrinsically motivates people and doesn't motivate people, and you can start to see the second and third order effects deeper within people. If I guess I distill it down even further, I think critically for a leader, decisiveness number one. You need to maintain that momentum. You need that ability to be decisive when the time calls for it. In the military, we learn to plan to 80% and then execute because the last 20% always changes. Uh, no good plan survives first contact with the enemy. So you need to be able to make that decision at the right time. And making decision is an active measure, whereas not making decision is passive and you're waiting and it's hard to restart that momentum. Whereas once you're moving forward, you can easily adjust that decision that you're making uh, as you gain more facts and decide better and better options. Conversely to that is the ability to pause, especially in the civilian context. And I see it with some of the, the higher level corporate leaders, that ability to, I guess, curb that excitement, enthusiasm and take that tactical pause. Or when the chips are down and everything's happening, uh, a crisis incident, take that small pause. And what you're doing in that time is gathering your thoughts, you're observing, you're uh, reaching out to your sensors, getting those data, that bits of information from your team or your systems to inform that first decision. So it's a fine balance between that decisiveness and, and that time to take that tactical pause. I think what underpins it all is an ability for a leader to win space and time. And quite often I find a lot of leaders might in the doing. They're normally doers who've made it into management and think it at you know, as a manager or a junior leader, you just do a higher rate and more of the doing, usually because of lack of formal training. In fact, you need to win that space and time to be a leader, be in front of your team, be a human presence, observe, orient, and be able to decide. And sometimes sit in your office and pontificate and think through a problem deeply before you uh, just take the next step. How you do that usually is actually by nailing your basic skills. If you have your basic tools, your comms, your planning tools, your decision-making tools, standard operating procedures, workflows, all the basic stuff happens, which enables you to free yourself to, uh, to do that leadership art.
Great points, Joel. And I just want to go right back to the start where you used the word presence. And just to continue on from our piece before, Eric, about what is it about the military training we receive? And and we often do have that drilled into us around the presence that you give. And I, I do remember having someone tap me on the shoulder and say, so a senior NCO was talking to me saying, sir, sold, uh, officers never run. It makes the soldiers unhappy, you know, and just things like that, just that presence. And I think that those of us who have a lot of those, that discipline instilled in us that go into the civilian context, some, some part of me says there's an itch, there's an itch to lead. And I do remember when I specifically left the military as a junior captain that I joined an organisation at a fairly modest level and I had a real itch to be in a leadership role again very quickly. And I think that that, you know, that presence that you can support others in doing as well is a good thing. The other thing you said, Joel, is around pausing. I think it's a really good one. I always remember one of the best examples of that was I read Alan Greenspan's book, which was a, an absolute epic. It took me about six months to read. But if you don't know who Alan Greenspan is, he's a former Federal Reserve chairman in the US. And he had a half an hour in his diary every day for quiet contemplation. And I think that that's an example of someone. And he used to say, get away from your desk, sit in a window and stare outside and just pause and, con- and consider your issues and have that time to consider and don't let anyone take that time from you. I think that's a good example of pausing. That's a, that's a really great one. And it, it reminds me, I'm probably not the first army commander outfield to have found uh, some solace and solitude in their command vehicle with the hatches down. You know, finding that time to leave the CP with all the eyes on you and just lock down in your command vehicle and take that time. Also being very conscious of being that physical presence, especially if you're a bit worn down, a bit tired, you need to think through a problem deeply. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely not the first one to do that. No, some really good good thoughts there. So we've touched it a little bit, Joel, in terms of the critical skills, but what do you think are the issues for those of us that have done it and those that are contemplating it, the, the issues in transitioning from military service to civilian life? Uh, yeah, there's some some base level ones and then there's some sort of higher level uh skill set things. I think at the moment, there's a lot of good research going into why contemporary veterans, especially having an issue transitioning into civilian life. And, you know, at time of recording right now, the the Royal Commission is underway and veterans and support services giving evidence right now. There's a a raft of data and I sat at a symposium um, for a submission for terms of reference for the, uh, the Royal Commission, where the National Commissioner spoke as well. And gave a whole heap of statistics and largely boiled down to coming around this awareness of purpose and identity and, you know, leaving an institution where you are institutionalised for all the right reasons and you are built up in a specific way and you're trained and programmed to think in a specific way, again, for all the right reasons. And then one day, literally the next day, you're gone. And whether that's, you know, one week in the military or 15 years like myself in the military, um, the simple thing of going and having this uh, cultural identity as this military leader and then even simply not being able to go back onto the base where you spent 15 years of your life on bases and you can't even enter these secure facilities anymore the next day you leave. So that purpose and identity, and for the majority of people in the military, no matter what your role or rank, uh, you feel like you're making a difference daily and you can be called upon any day to make that difference and the ultimate difference. Uh, So that is a, a purpose and identity that you a lot of veterans are struggling to find once they transition. And I think that ties into some of the social consciousness of Australia, understanding what skill sets 
uh, like some of the ones we mentioned before that veterans have that are valuable, you know, so I didn't say anything about a, a bachelor or a master's or a, a membership to an organization. I spoke about those inherent leadership skills, the ability to talk, think, decide, and lead, uh, which never come along with a lot of those, uh, those institutional degrees in the civilian world. And so I guess when you come out of the military, depending on your own uh, uh, personal journey, you have a period of one to three years where you sort of go down and then hopefully come back up. And it's all about finding that purpose and identity. I think on the higher end of the spectrum as well, confidence. And, you know, I think while we're in, we have a pretty terrible rhetoric with ourselves as military leaders about what we can achieve in the civilian world. Uh, you know, whether it's a, a trick to keep us in longer, something like that, we're often uh, told, you know, it's hard in the civilian world. It won't be as easy. You'll never make the same. You have to learn so much. And, and often I think that scares us and makes us take a, a lot of jobs or steps quite below what we're capable of doing once we leave coupled with that uh, conscious understanding of what we can provide. Uh, so it takes, uh, it takes a few beats for us to get to the level where we um, used to operate and where we can really make a difference again. One of the things I've done a lot of, and I'm not sure we've covered this in the past, Eric, is provide a lot of support to transitioning veterans, uh, primarily with things like resume writing and, and the articulation of skills in the civilian context. And I think that one of the things that we do have, and, and not to contradict anything Joel just said, is it's probably a level of humility about our experience. And, and I often use the phrase, your resume is not a time to be humble. And one of the skills that I think that is really important for a transitioning military person, regardless of rank, is to clearly articulate those skills in a civilian context. So as Joel would know, you're not the uh, RSM of one, the one RER. So Joel and I know what that means. You probably have heard of the acronym RSM, Eric, but you don't know what one RER is. Potentially you do, but what you are is potentially something like business unit manager or a director of a particular business unit or team leader is a, is a great example of something, for instance, for a platoon commander or even a platoon sergeant. So articulating those skills and putting it into an understanding that, let's be honest, a fairly young recruiter has to look at to provide advice to her or his client saying, this guy, Joel, this guy, Ben, this guy, Eric, has good skills. He's, he's been in the military for 10 years because when you see too many acronyms and we've dropped a few in this session already, people tend to glaze over and say, no, I don't get it. We've talked about this before, mate. I, I can forgive it from Joel, but I told you and you agreed not to drop acronyms on me and that's all you've been doing and I find it a disgrace. It's, <laughs> no, so yeah, I understood. I think more to the point, your last point there, Ben, I think people outside of the military context, so us civilians that have never been in the military, writing a CV, let alone addressing selection criteria is always difficult, irrespective of background. I think what makes it unique and difficult when you've come from the institutional context that you were painting, Joel, is how do you translate your skill set to a skill set in the civilian world and you know i think there's difficulties there i i would want to challenge something here and i've, I've not done the level of recruiting that you've been involved with uh ben or yourself joel of individuals whether inside or outside the military but if i was running a process and someone with a military background applied 
and this is, I guess, it's all context specific. Now that I've had discussions with and understood more where you guys are coming from, I would want to dig a lot deeper into the person with a military background because I know there'd be skill sets there that I'm not seeing that potentially might be there. That doesn't necessarily translate to people that don't understand to the degree that we've been able to have on conversation as leadership. Now, I'm not making any claims that beyond the leadership topic, I'm intimately familiar with what you guys have gone through in the military context, but I think it can be undersold at times. And it, I think it really depends on the position and that that can be nuanced and it can be at multiple different levels. And I hadn't given a lot of thought that when you're coming out of an institution that you would undersell yourself. Do you think it's done consciously or it's an unconscious thing that you're not sure how to pitch what you've learned? Is that Would that be fair call, gents? I think a level of humility is inherent in at least the Army Officer Corps. We uh, kind of instill or have it instilled within us that you never think you're the best in the world and you always try and stay humble and always listen. Uh, in fact, our entire leadership ethos of Mission Command is based around listening to the lowest level as well. So inherently within us, we try and stay a little bit humble and we kind of eat our own if anyone steps up and out. It's a, a, a very strong extension of the Aussie tall poppy syndrome, which is part of the problem uh, transitioning out or trying to um, uh, you know, be an exemplar as a military leader. I think a little bit of it is just that little fear factor. It's the unknown, especially if you went in early. Uh, you know, I joined at 18. I didn't really know what civilian world was and it's a big, scary beast. And um, you have to deal with things like finding a place to rent and tax and, uh, you know, starting your own business and insurance and things like this that you never had to worry about before. And I, I think in terms of articulating those skill sets, there is so much assumed knowledge in the military because you have to learn this whole system. I intrinsically know if someone says they're an OC, an RSM, you know, uh, SASR, uh, sniper team leader, et cetera, what that means and what is wrapped up into that package. And I even know the, uh, the training iterations and evolutions that they've gone through to get to that point. And so I think when we write our resumes, you tend to focus on that because, you know, if you say this short, punchy, concise thing, everyone understands it, but you don't really understand that they don't. Or even if you do, you don't know how to articulate like skill sets, you know, sniper team leader, for instance, ability to communicate effectively, ability to make snap decisions in high stress, time critical environments, ability to operate within an intent you know, skill sets like that that all tie in to something without saying, do I take, you know, long-range reconnaissance and long-range sniper shots? I think to the military's benefit, the operational tempo in the last 20 years has probably assisted the articulation of skills. I must admit, uh, with it, when I exited in 2002, I do remember literally joining a corporate firm, uh, so discharge Friday, corporate firm Monday, and just, Joel, I rocked up for PT at 7.30, no one was there. But anyway, I do remember, you know, and I don't blame them, but a lot of people would say to me, so did you like fire guns and stuff? And I used to say, well, well, yeah, but the things that I think about in my military training don't involve firearms or don't involve those things that are probably cliches. What they involve was what I referred to, and Joel would understand, as sub-accounts, so a sub-account for a young officer. For me, I remember having a $6 million sub-account of assets and equipment that I was responsible for. I had 37 soldiers that were human resources. I had, uh, as I said, financial responsibilities. I had um, logistical responsibilities. I looked after an IT network. You know, these are very, very clear linkages to the civilian context. 
and, you know, things like stock taking and some of the things that uh, Joel mentioned, insurances and taxation, all those various things, albeit in a very institutionalised setting, are things that you must be responsible for as a leader in the military. So these are the conversations I have with transitioning uh, military members because I say your skills are far beyond that rifle are far beyond that vehicle they are into an enormous realm of opportunity and I just think that they've got to recognize that and perhaps drop the humility a little bit write it down and then refine it after that so just some experience or anecdotes um, Joel have you uh, become involved in helping individuals transition to life outside the military true Osmosis first, I guess. I was probably one of the people when I transitioned, wanted to take a little bit of time and I didn't have a, a huge desire to work back for defence industry or anything like that. I was a sunny coast surf lifesaver guy, so I, I did what I know. I moved to the Gold Coast and I signed up as a volunteer surf lifesaver straight away. And in fact, that links to the purpose and identity thing. And that's how I solved many problems while I was working on figuring out what I wanted to do professionally. Because very quickly, I found myself on a management committee as a director of surf sports because I knew how to lead things. And then patrol captain because I could lead a small team and, and do risk assessments and thankfully swim still after 15 years in the army. And I became a trainer qualified RTO trainer and I've been instructor at Duntroon and a bunch of other schools as well. So I managed to find that purpose and utilize all those military skills there. And what ended up happening was I ended up just finding myself near veterans at times. And I found myself in position where I could assist. One of my earlier civilian roles was as a, a GM of a uh, an international supply chain within a retail environment. And we needed some labor hire. And, and lo and behold, two veterans came in one day and I knew what they were because funnily enough, they were both Ordnance Corps ammo supply soldiers. And I inherently knew the skills I had. These were souped up stormen. They were perfect for the warehouse environment. They had leadership skills, team skills. One was a, a veteran of the Middle East as well. And they stood out head and shoulders above people. And very quickly, I was able to find permanent employment and move them into uh, junior management roles in a warehouse floor. And I found that great because, you know, they were, they were trying to find their way through this, uh, this journey of transitioning out of military, hadn't nailed a permanent job, and I was able to provide them that structure and vouch for the skill sets and I guess demystify or translate the, the military jargon to the civilian counterpart, counterparts. I think lately as well within my surf life saving role, I've moved on to be secretary um, of a surf club here on uh, on the Gold Coast and within my training role as well, I was lucky enough to have a, an interesting mix of veterans in a, a most recent course. I had a, a naval clearance diver who's just about to start the transition process, a former cavalry soldier and a current tank driver on that course. So three very different um, military backgrounds and three different areas or levels of service. And again, I think just being a physical example of what a veteran can be and can look like, being that support base, you know, rather than the hyperlink uh, swarm that you get sent potentially by joint transition authorities and things like that, an actual human being in front of them who'll grab them and say, right, mate, we're going to sit down here and we're going to go through your resume and I'm going to help you, you know, find jobs or if I, an opportunity comes my way, I will assist. And, you know, that's largely what happened to me in my, I guess, my last sort of two and a half, three years as well, where uh, other veterans and other people I knew through my service grabbed me helped me out and gave me that little leg up and confidence. Think of it, I guess, as a, a battle buddy in our old vernacular, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, organizations, um, ESOs like Homefront, for example, who helped me out, uh, you know, provide you first consulting job and employees veterans preferentially to support other veterans and aged, aged veterans in need. Great versions of that where other veterans pick each other up and help other veterans out. So informally, yes, I end up in that space. And um, I guess more recently, I probably ended up being attracted to uh, an RSL sub-branch as a director for a year where I'm assisting them design and develop a contemporary veteran community connection piece where again I get to build a small little team to help me out which will be full of other veterans and giving them potentially their first opportunities in the civilian space. Well done thank you for sharing mate Um, look we're on our final topic area and this is a question we like to ask of all our podcast guests so the nature versus nurture question Joel uh, are leaders born or are they made? (laughs) The eternal question I had a really good think about this prior to jumping on here today and I'm pretty firm in my answer that has to be both. In my mind, you have to have some inherent desire or bent towards leadership, some natural inclination that, like many of our journeys, start you out potentially uh, as a leader of a a sports team or within your, your school cohorts and things like that. Because I think by the time that formal opportunities for learning about leadership come along, if you don't have a natural inclination or bent towards it, you're never going to put yourself in the position to receive that sort of formal training. If you accidentally find yourself there through osmosis um, by being the most senior technocrat in an organization, you'll usually probably not perform so well. You'll find every way possible to um, isolate yourself back out of that leadership role. And then I think that formal understanding and formal training is so, so vital. Otherwise, you end up with a lot of managers and doers practicing the science, not the art. And there's a lot of doctrinal leadership learning that underpins everything you do. And it's all those basics, um, all that subtle, unconscious behaviors, physical example, communication skills, things like that, that set that foundation, set those basics to help you win that space and time. So I think to be a fully rounded leader, you have to have a natural bent to get you towards the goalpost. And then you have to have that formal training to really cement your skill set. Joel, thank you for that, mate. Uh, look, I think however many months ago that I asked, I got asked that question, Eric, I think I did answer with both. It perhaps wasn't as affirmative as uh, Joel. Uh, I think I might have gone 70, 30 or something like that. But uh, I, I'm, I was of the view that it was both and it was a contribution of some degree from both sides. And, um, you know, the cliches like you're a product of your environment and the people around you. But I, I still think that there is a natural, biological, genetic or some sort of uh, inherent part of our system that leads us to want to be leaders and naturally or unnaturally as well so and i couldn't agree more i think there's a lot of wannabe doctrinal and leaders out there that uh you know just aren't sort of you know painting those brush strokes in the right direction so but uh no all good all good points joel thank you for your insights Joel, thank you. Gentlemen, we've reached the end of the podcast. I would, I could talk a lot more about the transitional issues to do with military to civilian life. And who knows, maybe you'll come back and do another podcast with us, Joel. So gentlemen, thank you for your time, particularly you, Joel. Thank you for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me along. Great chat. Ben, as always, thank you. Thanks again for your support and we'll catch you all on the next podcast.